Hi, and welcome to season five of Business Book Talk. Hope you're going to enjoy this new season. I'm really excited about it. I'm sure you will really enjoy some of the books that we have planned. So let's get on with the show. Hi, everybody. It's Bob again. I've got Mastering the Art of Recruiting, and I've got Michael Travis with us today. Thanks for coming on the show, Michael. Thanks for having me, Bob. It's my pleasure to be here. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about uh, recruiting and how difficult it is to recruit. I mean, gosh, there's been so many organizations I've worked with uh, where I have been in the recruiting role and also in the role of trying to be recruited. And it's probably got to be the toughest job out there. How should organizations or why are organizations uh, struggling with this fundamental thing that's probably one of the most important things that they should be considering uh, to make their organization stronger? Yeah, I think companies and individuals struggle because it's so hard. Uh, I like to say recruiting is like golf. Most people aren't that good at it, and even the people who are can get a lot better. And no one, obviously, is perfect. Um, But most companies, although they all universally will profess that people are the foundation of of success and the the reason that they are successful, um, most of them don't really follow through when it comes to behavior. Mm. And a good example of that is the failure of most companies, really all but the the biggest ones, to provide any kind of training to their young managers on how they should recu- recruit. HR people, this, this is was my own experience as a young manager too, uh, HR told me all the things I wasn't allowed to ask um, and explained how not to get sued, but they didn't provide any helpful advice or direction on how to make a good choice. Mm. Do you think that's a problem that managers have to understand that, you know, if they need somebody in their organization, they should be directing HR, doing a better job, explaining to HR what their needs are, or is it HR not helping the managers understand that you're not hiring for a skill set, you're hiring for attitude? Yeah, I... I think the where fault lies may differ depending on the situation, but in general, I'd like to advise any hiring manager that he or she is responsible for his or her own success, and that means they'll have to take charge of their own education, and when they're doing an important recruiting project, while they may have help from HR or a recruiter, that they're the one who's really in charge and they're the ones who have to make uh, the good result happen at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah, they can't be coming back three weeks later or or six months later saying, yeah, he's not working out, let's do it again. (laughs) Right, indeed. For recruiting, you've got two choices. You bring somebody into the organization or you shuffle people around in the organization, you find somebody within an organization that wants to move into your department. Is that a good way to be recruiting or is that just weakening other departments? Well, I think when companies can fill a job from within, that's always preferable for a whole bunch of reasons. First of all, the employee is a known quantity. So um, the ability to adapt to the culture, uh, the skill set, personality, all of these things that are um, 
still somewhat unknown when you bring on a new outsider, have all been thoroughly vetted out. Um, Hiring from within also provides a growth path to people within the company. And it can be discouraging when um, insiders see outsiders being tapped for an important new job. And thirdly, it's, uh, it's cheaper. Companies that are really good at resource planning don't have to spend as much money on recruiters like me. Well, that's a good segue uh, to my next question <laughs> is, at what stage does a company have to decide that, gosh, you know, let's just use a recruiter because we're spinning our wheels here? There are a couple of different answers to that question. Mm. Some positions, um, and I work on a retainer, so I'm typically working on executive level, CEO, vice president, uh, board of directors. Many of those jobs are so important that companies will always hire an outside recruiter because they want to make sure that they're getting an absolutely thorough view of the marketplace and they're considering every single option. If the company is attempting to do the recruiting inside, if they have a an organization that's been purpose-built to do that, often they can do a great job. There's some companies that have made this a science. But if an internal group is spinning its wheels for too long, and that might be uh, a month or three months or more, depending on circumstance, um, then you have to ask if uh, there isn't a better way, mm. because the uh, the value of time is quite high. Um, it's the highest of all the things that are spent in in these recruiting projects. Well, it's also, you know, recruiting somebody is, is kind of like looking for a needle in a haystack. And, you know, every now and again, you'll pull out a needle and go, aha, and it's bent. Uh, so you got to <laughs> throw it away and start looking again. Say, ah, damn. Uh, do you feel that a lot of the recruiting process gets um, uh, derailed because people just either, number one, get frustrated, or number two, get lazy and say, well, I'm just going to ask some friends who would recommend and actually don't do a formal uh, vetting process. Well, that's that last point you make is a, a very common problem. Um, I, uh, recruiting through one's network, that is asking your your pals, uh, who they know who might be interested in a new job, that's a great technique. And I know some CEOs who do that incredibly well. But the big risk is that you do not put these friends and family referrals through the usual gauntlet. And um, and you just take your friend's word for it that uh, Joe is a good guy or Susie is a great VP. Mm. Um, you have to go through all the process and never give anybody a free pass. Um, some of the worst mistakes I've observed people make are when they did just that. Hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, you can't really 
blame a lot of people for that because, gosh, they're they're busy, probably working way too hard, trying to keep their department going and, and things moving along and, and, and taking care of their people. And then suddenly somebody drops out of the game and it's like, I don't have time to look for these people. And then they go to HR and say, fix the problem and walk away from it. And that kind of goes back to our earlier conversation about them being responsible and having to step up. Finding the right person for the right job, that's a full-time job. I mean, that's hours and hours and hours of your time. How do you approach management and say, look, I have to replace this person. I need 10% of my time to do this so I can't take on X projects. This is exactly what I was referring to earlier when I said a lot of comp- every company talks the talk, but few walk it. Mm. Um it's understandable, however. You've pointed out exactly what happens. Uh, a busy executive is continually swamped. Their to-do list always has 25 hours worth of work on it every day. So um, things aren't – by definition, everything doesn't get done each day. Um, recruiting is always a long-term project. So – when you're fighting a lot of other short-term fires, it's easy to push recruiting to the bottom of the list. Mm. Um, the problem problems add up uh, if you do that every day, and all of a sudden you're six or nine months away from uh, initiating a search and you still don't have someone on board. Um, you have to put in the time and you have to prioritize it, and that can mean delegating other things that you've got on your plate, pushing other things down to uh, folks on your staff. Uh, If you hear a lot of the most prominent CEOs running the biggest companies in the country, they'll tell you that their job is building the team, just like uh, the general manager of a baseball team is – ultimately responsible for success and and is responsible for putting together the roster that's what a ceo or an executive is doing mm. well I, you know it's interesting because for years and years i was too lower management to be able to see what was going on in c-suite level now i'm getting up there i'm you know chatting and sitting down with a lot of ceos and they have two jobs one is basically the company's top sales guy Really, right. which is ironic. Uh, and then there also have to be a visionary, and that's part of the sales process. And then, yeah, the other part is finding new people to replace high-level people in the organization and also doing HR within the C-suite level to make sure everybody's happy and everybody's on board and they're not going to jump ship. Right. So where does HR actually fit in? I mean, I just don't see HR helping C-suite level people because it's kind of, it's such a small group of people, you know, maybe eight, maybe five, and that can kind of be taken care of by the CEO. And then upper management, medium management, that's probably where you're getting your most of your ROI out of, of um, that department. What about lower level hires? Should that be not even considered for HR and let 99.9% of the hiring be done uh, through a manager and give more time to HR to do their job for the more important, more uh, tactical and strategical uh, positions? Well, with respect to the um, 
executive level stuff that you referenced mm. first, uh, I think there is a role for HR to play if the CEO wants it to play it mm. and and builds the function that way. In other words, recruits a, a high-level strategic person into that top HR job. And that role is, the, is um, really serving as the right hand of the CEO and other peers on the executive team when it comes to strategizing the talent plan for their groups and then executing it. Um, so you could think of the senior HR person as being a very, very high-level uh, consultant mm. working as a partner with these top executives. And when an HR, really good HR person is allowed to function that way, it, it really can be a game changer. On the lower level stuff, um, sure, HR can assist with hiring lower level jobs, but I always think that the hiring decision needs to sit as close to the manager as possible and never be delegated to HR. Mm. Um, after all, the, the hiring manager is the one who's going to live with the result. Um, that's the person with the biggest self-interest in getting it right, so they should be the one pulling the levers. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, LinkedIn because it's been such a game changer for the HR industry. Uh, what do you think about uh, what's happening with LinkedIn? Do you think it's distorting stuff? Do you think it's a good thing? Do you think they could be improving it? Um, are people using it the wrong way? Uh, well, first of all, I think LinkedIn is a game changer. It's the most important thing that's happened in recruiting in my working life. Mm. Um, it has become the de facto database for every recruiter um, at all levels. And if they tell you that it's not, they're really not being honest. Um, the The best thing about LinkedIn is that it's uh, it's almost universal at this point. Almost everybody's on there. And it's a self-updating database. Mm. It never goes stale. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's terrific. Um, what it's done is that it's made identifying potential candidates a commodity. So I like to tell people I could give my teenage son the specification for a job, and in an hour, he could come back with a list of people that uh, would be likely prospects. Mm. Um, so that part of uh, recruiting has no value now. Anybody can do it. Um, it's really put the focus on the part of recruiting that where the real value is, which is you know, from a list of one or 200 potential candidates, which are the top four, five, six that should really get a look for an important new job? Hmm. Um, you know, on the candidate side, I um, I think there's a a lot of opportunity to waste time on LinkedIn if you're a job seeker. <laughs> um, you uh, no, I like to say no one ever got hired staring at their computer screen. So LinkedIn is a great tool for um, figuring out connections and making connections to people you can meet in the real world mm. over a coffee, um, over a meal. Um, 
So in, you could think of it as a tool for accelerating old-fashioned networking. But if you think the, the system itself is the place to find a job, that's not going to happen. Hmm. That's that, I mean, that's very interesting, and I think that's one of the flaws with LinkedIn right now, is that everybody says, "Oh, I'll just go on LinkedIn and I'll get hired through LinkedIn," or "or I'm uh, going to find the right person. I never have to meet them. It's going to save me a ton of time." Yeah. Which well, is, I, to a little story about when I got into the search business, I um, I resigned my job at a startup, and um, my former boss, who was the CEO. Um, gave me my first assignment to replace myself. <laughs> um, but later on, I went to him and asked him if he knew if there were people to whom he could refer me. Mm. And he sat me down in his office and he said, look, I don't have time to go through all this stuff, but here are three or four boxes of business cards. Go through all of them and tell me who you'd like an introduction to. And he was incredibly generous but um, those boxes of business cards are the equivalent of what you now have on LinkedIn, where you can see who your best friend knows and if there's anyone there who, to whom he could introduce you to help your search. Hmm. Uh, you know, it, it, the more we talk, the more I realize it, 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 it goes all the way back to the fundamentals. I mean, once you have the, those, that particular connection or an introduction – it goes back to uh, how to conduct an interview, how to write the ask, uh, ask the right questions, what to put in your CV. All this that's been going on for hundreds of years. So, uh, for you as a, as as like a high end recruiter, what are people doing wrong that is basically making it difficult for people like you to help them find a perfect position? <laughs> That's a big, big answer, I know. <laughs> everything. Yeah. They're doing everything wrong, Bob. <laughs> um, well, I I should qualify my answer first by saying that I'm always working on behalf of companies who hire me to fill a specific job. So uh, I don't work with candidates to help them find new work. But Right, but if we spin that, it's like if candidates did a better job making, you know, using LinkedIn and and. and putting together CVs that were actually more accurate or whatever, it would make your job of finding uh, a more, uh, uh, the, filling the space more efficiently and uh, not having to, to go through layers and layers and layers of, uh, I don't know, decoding would be a better term. Yeah. Uh, the, um, the most common problems that I see on the candidate side are, problems that have existed for years. Mm. Um, they don't interview well. And that's pretty easy to fix by practicing a lot before you go out into the marketplace. Yeah. Uh, and believe it or not, a lot of candidates don't do their homework. They'll show up at an interview and they don't know enough about the company or the opportunity or the person with whom they'll be interviewing. And nowadays, it doesn't take a lot of work to figure all of that stuff out. Uh, thanks to the internet. So there really isn't an excuse. Uh, that sends a message that the candidate's either not that interested or just a little bit lazy. Mm -hmm. And that's not really what you're looking for. Yeah, neither one of those sells particularly well to a hiring manager. <laughs> <laughs> so, so now let's flip it on his head. What are organizations doing, still doing from way back in the old habits and stuff like that, that is making it very difficult for uh, 
you as a headhunter to do your job? Well, I'll... Um, Without getting you in trouble with your clients. Sure. <laughs> um, I'll tell you a, a few areas where companies will commonly uh, get challenged. One is a very foundational mistake. They'll um, fail to build consensus about what it is that they're looking for. And that that begins to show itself when a group will begin interviewing candidates and their feedback is all over the place. Mm. Uh, that means everyone has their own yardstick and they're all measuring against different criteria. And when you see that happen, you have to go back to square one and say, look, let's um, let's all get on the same page. What are we looking for? And what's the most important thing? What are the nice to haves? And what do we really not care about? Mm. Um, on the very other end of the process, um, this doesn't happen typically when a recruiter's involved, but it happens a lot when one is not involved. Um, they don't do enough references. I think references are the most powerful and the most underutilized tool in recruiting. So if a hiring manager does three or four references and doesn't really probe because she's already made up her mind, those references are going to be useless. Mm. They're just a formality. Um, by the time hiring managers get around to do referen doing references, they they have decided they're going to make an offer if if the references come out well, but they need to l make sure they leave the door ajar to hearing bad news, and they have to aggressively go looking for it. Um, I'll typically talk to ten or more references on a candidate. And there's no rule of thumb, I think, on exactly how many you should talk to, but you have to keep talking to new people until you stop hearing new things. Mm. And you also have to listen carefully. Sometimes people um, tell you things obliquely or um, in a, a non-obvious way, and they're they're trying to be honest without being entirely forthcoming they want you I guess you could say they want to probe to see how much you really want to know um, you know in the book I say that sometimes uh, he's got a strong sense of self-confidence means the guy's an egomaniac <laughs> um, you you need to to really dig in to figure out what people are telling you mm. yeah a lot of platitudes out there yeah, indeed, indeed, and most the the big error that most companies and hiring managers make is that they don't push past the platitudes. Mm. Um, when when people are are interviewing uh, a specific candidate, I mean, is the order like? And I'm kind of getting that hint from the last. Uh, thing we just talked about are people doing the recruiting breakdown in the wrong order should they be uh doing things like 
tons of referencing before they even talk to the person to have a much better idea what they're they're looking at and based on those conversations on references uh, know the type of questions to bring up in the interview or should they be doing the general interview and then going for the more deep uh, research I advocate doing the latter mm. um, <clears throat> if you were to do the kind of deep referencing that I just talked about before you interviewed anyone um, you'd never get the search done. Uh, it would because it takes a it takes a day on the phone to to do all of that. So um, what I'll typically do is I'll do one. I call it a pre-reference before I meet someone. Uh, if I have a mutual connection and I've been doing this long enough that I usually do, um, I'll call up my our mutual connection and say, "Hey, I'm interviewing Bob or." Susan, um, what do you think? Um, I can't go too deep on a reference then, but I'm looking for a thumbs up or a thumbs down. If I get a very strong thumbs down, um, that might cause me to not bother with the interview. On the other hand, if they say, wow, she's unbelievable, um, you'd be lucky uh, to, to get her on board for your client, um, then maybe we put that person at the head of the line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it also, it, it, it kind of, if you get a, a response like that, then you're thinking this person's not going to be in the market too long, or there's probably other people that are approaching that person. Uh, they might not be available. Sure. Um, and this is particularly true right now where, where we've come through a long, slow economic time. And I think for a number of years, employers held all the cards and they were accustomed to being able to take their sweet time when making hiring decisions. Uh, the economy right now is doing great. Companies are hiring at a rapid clip, and people who are still in that recession frame of mind are going to lose out because um, all the good candidates are going to be hired by companies that are more nimble. Well, and this brings uh, up, the next thing, uh, <clears throat> headhunting, where you're actually poaching people from an organization, a, a company that's being a little on the uh, recession side and being pushing people down and not offering spot proper benefits and saying, no, we're struggling, you you know, no benefits this year, or you're not getting a raise, that type of stuff. Then you're kind of seeding your whole organization with the attitude as well, you know what, I got a better offer. So how prevalent is headhunting uh, these days compared to what it was like, you know, 10 years ago? It's it, Well, headhunting is my business. Executive search is headhunting. And uh, I think the business is as healthy as it's ever been. Mm. Um, in fact, uh, 30, 40 years ago, if executive search was still a little bit of an unusual sell. Um, I wasn't around in those days, but old timers tell me that um, it was a new concept. And today it's become the standard way to approach making a high impact or uh, high paying executive hire. Yeah, it's almost like if you want to get into those positions, you actually have to be in that position to get handed out to be put into that position, which is kind of a catch 22 for a lot of people. Well, I'd like to think that some of us at least are are good at finding diamonds in the rough and uh, who are worthy of be moving up to the next level. Um, 
However, it's also true that a lot of times when a client hires a firm like mine to go find some senior executive, they want someone who's done it before mm. um, or done something similar before. Uh, they're, they're trying to minimize the risk involved in the new hire. Yeah, they're, they're trying to basically hire hindsight. Yeah, yeah, or hire, uh, you know, they don't want the uh, proven or the uh, high promise rookie from AAAs. They'd like someone with a couple of seasons and some statistics under their belt. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, and that makes a lot of sense because if that person's driving the ship, you want them to be able to say, oh, yeah, well, we're not going to go this way because that blew up in my face. So they're not even going to consider that and, and, that's the type of person you need in that position. Yeah, indeed. Um, so when you were, you know, putting basically all your knowledge from all these years into a uh, written form, uh, what was your aha moment where something you've known about for a long time really crystallized and, and became uh, like a fundamental truth for you? That's a good question. The biggest insight I had was that anyone can learn to be outstanding at hiring people. Mm. We have a tendency to think about the ability to make good hiring decisions as being almost an inborn trait. People say things like, that guy's a great judge of people. And it's assumed that that's a a character trait rather than a skill they learned. the aha moment for me was realizing, yes, this is a skill and anyone can learn it. Um, and that's empowering. You know, if you believe the ability to, to make good hiring decisions is some, is a byproduct of some inborn trait, then why bother trying to learn if you don't have it? Um, but I think anyone can learn. And by the way, my own experience uh, validates that for me. I, If you asked my clients today, I think they'd say I'm uh, insightful and I'm a good judge of people, but it wasn't always that way. And as a young manager, I made more than my share of errors, mm. but you can learn. Even I can learn. <laughs> <laughs> um. Now, in, in uh, Section 6, you've got uh, common problems and how to fix them. When you say common problems, is that common problems on the hiring side or is the common problems um, for uh, the people that you're trying to f- uh, filter through, I guess would be the best way of saying it? Um, what I'm referring to there are common problems that result when a company's trying to fill an important job. So um, a, a common scenario is there two, three months into a search for an important new executive and things are stuck. Why are they stuck? They, in most cases, they shouldn't be because um, these are pretty attractive jobs. So the task is to diagnose what's happening and then to fix it and get back on track. Mm. Now, when, when, you know, when you're looking for somebody and you find a a really, really good candidate and everybody gets on board and say, yeah, this guy's perfect. That's really not the end of the job. That's kind of almost like the beginning of the job? Yes. So why is that? Well, there's a long way to go. Um, (laughs) First, uh, 
first are references. Let's say that everyone's agreed that a certain candidate is the one they wish to move forward with. Um, there, Ronald Reagan was the president who said, trust but verify, when talking about a, the Russians in a nuclear arms treaty, I think. Mm -hmm. um, the, the same approach is a good a good one when it comes to recruiting. You you should go out and try to validate all the things that you think are positives when you do references. And you should also try to dig into areas that you suspect might be weaknesses. Mm. Uh, references will uh, ideally show you that your impressions are true. Um, very rarely they'll uh, turn up a, a fatal flaw, um, which is never a welcome circumstance, but you should be grateful when that happens. Um, and they always, when they're done well, they give the hiring manager really good insights into how they can manage the person to get the most out of them and to make them as effective as possible. Mm. And then, of course, once you've gotten through references, um, hopefully successfully, uh, you have the task of putting together and presenting an offer. And that also um, can be delicate because it's in a time at which both sides can get emotional. And um, sometimes the uh, uh, manner in which the offer is presented is as important as what's in it. Mm. You know, it, it's... Uh the offer is that's a that's a negotiation situation and a lot of people don't realize that when they're in a in a that final stages of of uh, a career opportunity that what they get offered from an organization isn't really what the organization's asking for it's like eh, they're just testing the waters i would assume uh but most people say it's like oh that's it and get you know pissed off a lot of times like you said emotion gets involved and and walk away from the table um how often is this happening that that organizations aren't communicating that or people just aren't assuming that it's a negotiation well i think that at least at an executive level people know it's a negotiation there aren't fixed salaries for executive level jobs they're always negotiated and and that includes everything from salary and bonus to uh, stock options, restricted stock, vacation, benefits, cars, you name it, relocation. Mm. So um, everything's up for negotiation. The You're absolutely right that a common place where people get tripped up is um, uh, they haven't set expectations properly the candidate hasn't set his or her expectations and the company hasn't set expectations with the candidate on what kind of range they should expect for an offer. Um, it's interesting, although the negotiation for salary always comes at the end, um, I always discuss money with candidates in the very first conversation I have with them. I'm not looking to talk about the specific end number, obviously, but I want to establish that both sides are in the same ballpark and that there's even a basis for a deal, mm. because if there's not, then why bother talking? 
Yeah, yeah. Well, and you know, anytime I've dealt with a, a headhunter, it's kind of been that way too, where they've we'd had an initial couple of conversations. They say, "Look, at you know, I've only got like one hundred fifty thousand dollar budget here. Is that in the ballpark or not?" And uh, you know, then it's up to the candidate to say, "Well, yeah, well, it depends on the benefits and stuff like that." Well, that's a good enough answer to keep moving forward. But if they say, "No way," I need a minimum three fifty, blah blah blah. Then it's okay. Well, maybe in the future, that type right. of stuff. Right. Exactly. Um, <clears throat> is that uh, discussion uh, and the numbers involved because we're coming out of a, a recessionary period and people have basically had their salaries stripped down to the absolute bare minimum? Is that evolving now, and is it becoming a, a much bigger part of the discussion or are people still hungry and uh, they tend to make decisions uh, quickly without negotiating uh, properly? I've seen candidates have many more opportunities in the last, say, 18 months. Mm. So um, whereas in 2009, if we were negotiating with a candidate, it was likely the only thing on their plate at that moment. Uh, today, a really good candidate might have three or four irons in the fire. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's usually uh, maybe not a direct competitive situation, but it, you're dealing with a client who's got many other, or a candidate with many other options. Do you bring that up in the conversation as, as trying to be as transparent as possible? Like say, hey, I know you probably have several offers, blah, 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 or you don't bring that up? Uh, I'll always bring that up. I, I try to approach all these negotiations um, in a very transparent kind of way. Mm. And I think that they're most successful when both sides aren't trying to squeeze every nickel out of the deal, but rather they're looking for a win-win. Mm-hmm. Now, with um, with people that are, are running a large organization and, and thinking of hiring a, a recruiter or a headhunter like yourself, what should they be looking for? They should be looking for a few things. Um, first, I, a, a good retained recruiter will function as a partner in filling a key position. Mm. So first and foremost, you need someone you can work with and who you trust. Mm. And that's largely a matter of uh, personal chemistry. You should have someone who has done a lot of work in your industry and ideally someone who can speak fluently about the, the function for which you're recruiting and has done a number of searches in that area before. Um, <clears throat> you also need to validate that the person that you're hiring is the one who's actually going to be doing the work. That's usually a non-issue when you're dealing with a small company or a boutique. Mm. If you're dealing with a giant global recruiting firm, you need to make sure the person that you think you're hiring to do the project is actually going to do it. Um, because quite commonly the work will get farmed off to someone else and the person who's sold to you will really just be a relationship manager. 
Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't even thought about that. Is that um, does that cause a lot of problems in the process? I think it can because uh, part of the magic of a really well done executive search is figuring, trying to make a an intelligent call on personal chemistry. Mm-hmm. Now, will this candidate be a good fit for working with the client? And if you don't know the client really well, you can't begin to make that judgment. Um, so if it's been farmed off to someone at the office in across the country, um, then in all likelihood, the ability to make intelligent decisions about chemistry is non-existent. Mm. That's that's so critical in almost any part of an organization where you have this uh, disconnect and, and uh, people communicating through third parties and then the f- person that's actually making the decision is getting frustrated because they're, what they're saying is getting translated through another person to a, you know, to the third person who's doing an interpretation and whatever comes out of that is not going to fit. It's just humanly impossible. Right, right. And then if, if things go really badly, the client ends up interviewing a bunch of people who are just not right. And not only does that slow down the search process, but it wastes a lot of the client's time. And one of the benefits of the service is supposed to be that you're saving them time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, based on that, I, I think, you know, when you're trying to find a recruiter, a recruiter that's pretty upfront about stuff and said, look, you know, and says something like, well, who am I actually working for? Is this for you or is it somebody above you? And if it's somebody above you, I have to have a meeting with them. And if you can't arrange that, then I don't think we're going to be able to work with you. Yes. Um, it's imperative for the recruiter to work directly with the hiring manager or else it's like playing a game of telephone. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, for, for a lot of organizations, they don't realize that each manager has a sp- specific personality type and there's bias based to that personality type. And that's just the way it is. Right. And getting... Uh, Getting a good fit, you know, helping that manager to build a team that works really well together, that's that's really where the rubber meets the road. Mm-hmm. If uh, teams that really click get a lot more done than teams that don't. Hmm. Now, you know, we're kind of in an interesting situation because we're, we're like I said before, we're, we're coming out of a, a slump and we're coming into a, a driven economy. Uh, there's a lot of talent that's out there that isn't currently employed at their primary uh, skill set because they just had to take a job to make ends meet. Are you finding it difficult um, because the references are a little uh, uh, askew? Or are you taking that into consideration when you're looking for top talent? Um, I think you're talking specifically about situations where someone's been either been unemployed for a long time or is been doing something that's outside of their core expertise. Yeah, yeah, basically you, that's not what they're specialized in. So you basically you've got a resume that goes to a certain uh, time and then they got da- the company got downsized or whatever the the reason is that they're in a different industry. Um are you guys taking that into consideration when when looking for talent or trying to find uh find hidden gems? We do, and occasionally you'll find a hidden gem like that. <clears throat> Um, you know, 30 years ago when 
lifetime employment was still something that, well, even more than 30 years ago, maybe 40 years ago, mm. when companies would still uh, uh, frequently employ people for an entire career, getting fired or dismissed from a job was a real black mark. You know, honestly, it's not nowadays. People, in fact, many of the very most successful executives that you could point to um, in any of our North American companies have been fired at least once. Mm. Um, so in and in many instances, I think it ends up being the crucible that enables some kind of intensive personal development that gets them to a new level. Um, I, but all that said, these folks who have been outside of their core area or unemployed for a long period of time have really had an uphill battle. I do think things are going to get better for them with unemployment continuing to go down there and, and demand for people showing no signs of decreasing. Mm. I think that, um, Companies are going to get creative about where they hire from, and they're going to begin taking another look at people they dismissed, you know, in earlier times. Yeah. Well, they, they're going from an overflowing well to a well that's getting deeper and deeper that they have to dip, dip into. Right. Mm. Um, for company organizers and and uh, HR professionals that are, that are listening to the show, um, what's the one thing that they can do today to improve their department? I think the one thing that and any manager could do to improve the situation of her department or her company is to spend more time on talent-related issues. Um, I'm, I feel a little bit like I'm uh, beating a dead horse here, but... Um, <laughs> hey, if it's that important, it, it, it's, keep going. It's yeah. really important. Um, everyone says it's all about people. Few people behave as if it's really all about people. And companies that recognize that they've got equity in their human capital and really do stuff to build it up, not just recruiting, but um, succession planning, training people, working on good retention plans. And retention, by the way, is um, sort of the flip side of recruiting. And if companies that aren't worried about retention in this economy are going to are going to get nailed, it's they're going to have a tough time. Yeah. Um, companies that really uh, focus on talent regularly run circles around their competitors talking the game is easy doing it's really hard uh like everything in life indeed <laughs> <laughs> we've been talking with michael mastering the art of recruiting uh how to hire the right candidate for the job amazing book full of of, of great insights and i i think it's uh, a book that should be written uh <clears throat> should be read by uh, people that are actively looking to get into uh, the workforce, uh, continue to get uh, to evolve in the workforce, but also for HR departments to really get their head around how to become more of an ROI-driven uh, department in an organization. So thanks for coming on the show, Michael. Oh, thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. I enjoyed it. 
Hey, I hope you enjoyed that show and do me a favor and tweet about it. Follow us on Facebook if you haven't done that already. We really appreciate it. See you next week.